Today marks the conclusion of our three-month study of the New Testament letter of James. For the past several months, we have been arrested and assaulted by the passion of the author and the amazing practicality of his teaching. We come to the final passage today, and James gives an urgent plea for prayer. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to be in the life of the believer. It is with those thoughts in mind that I invite you to take a Bible and turn one more time to James chapter 5. Uh, once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter 5, I'll begin reading at verse 13. I'll conclude at verse 20. James chapter 5, allow me to begin at verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It was William Carey, the father of modern missions, who said, Fervent believing prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. Fervent believing prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. I'm Trinitarian, I'll say it a third time. Fervent believing prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. This whole concept of prayer really unlocks the entire letter of James. James had been talking about personal godliness from chapter one to chapter five. This little bitty letter written by the younger brother of Jesus, tucked away on the back porch of the Bible, has been prompting us and calling us to personal godliness. So James tells us that we are to be doers of the word. We are not to show favoritism. We are to have a faith that is demonstrated by what we do. He prompted us to tame the tongue to surrender our plans unto the Lord. Do not quarrel or fight or argue one with the other. Be generous, be patient, and here he says to be prayerful. The word prayer dominates this final passage. It is written at least seven times in verses 13 to 20. This is a passage all about fervent believing prayer, which lies at the root of all personal godliness. I suspect that all of us would agree that we need to pray. I also have a holy hunch that most of, if not all of us, would say that we need to pray more than we currently 
pray. And the reality is, we need to pray a lot more than we currently pray. In a recent survey, George Barna reported that the American Christian prays on average one minute a day. The American pastor is not that much better. The American pastor prays on average five minutes a day. If George Barna's off by a few seconds or a couple of minutes, even that is woefully inadequate. We expect to live a vibrant spiritual life gasping on one-minute prayers a day. Have you ever wondered why is it that our spiritual lives are so anemic? Or the church in America is so apathetic? Could it be that we are just praying one-minute prayers a day, thinking that somehow, some way, that will sustain us? Let me ask you a question. Are you only breathing one minute a day? Are you only breathing one minute out of the 1,440 minutes that God graces you with every single day? The answer is no. You're breathing multiple times every single minute of every single day. And my friend, you and I have to be people of prayer. And we pray multiple times a day, numerous minutes a day, in order to be sustained and strengthened in this spiritual walk with Christ. It was Jesus who said in Luke 18, that we ought to pray and never give up on prayer. Paul writes that we ought to pray without ceasing. James comes along and in agreement with those other two authors, James says that our prayers ought to be continuous. Verses 13 and 14. Ought to be faithful. Verses 15 to 18. And we ought to pray expectantly verses 19 and 20. First, James calls the church to pray and as we uh, pray, that we are to pray continuously. Is anyone in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Then prayerfully sing and shout songs of praise unto the Lord. Is anyone sick? He should call on the elders, that's the spiritual leaders of the church. Have them come and pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. James asks some very specific, poignant questions, doesn't he? Is anyone in trouble? The word trouble, it means afflicted. It means to experience suffering. Is there anybody who's suffering? Anybody whose marriage is in trouble? Anybody whose children are in trouble? Anybody whose finances are in trouble? Anybody whose unemployment is in trouble? Is there anybody in trouble? James says that person ought to pray. Now why should we pray when we're in trouble? Because we pray to a God who can turn trouble into triumph. Don't just take my word for it. Consider Jonah, who prayed in the smelly belly of the fish. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who prayed in the fiery furnace. Consider Paul and Silas, who prayed as they were locked in the stocks of a Philippian jail. They prayed in times of trouble and affliction and suffering. And ours is a God who can change trouble into triumph. There may be somebody here who is in trouble. And Paul says, pray. Is there anybody happy? 
Somebody who's just about to have a Holy Ghost spell. Is there anybody who acknowledges that God has been good to me? God has treated me far better than I deserve. Maybe you've had the greatest week in the history of your life just this past week. Maybe something spectacular has happened to you or through you. And you come into church today and you're just happy. And you know it. You are happy and you just want to celebrate unto the Lord. James says if anyone is happy, then he should sing and shout songs of praise unto the Lord because some of us could get testimony that we should not be here today the doctor gave us six months to live and that was 15 years ago there's somebody in the house who should be in jail but you're not there's somebody who should be in the hospital but you're healed. There's somebody who should be on the street, but you're gainfully employed. There's somebody who should be lost, but you're found. Oh, God should have killed us, but he kept us. God should have rejected us, but he's redeemed us. God should have left us, but he loves us. Is there anybody who just knows that God is a good God, and today you're happy in the house, and you just want to say unto the Lord, thank you for how good you are. Is there anybody who's sick? Have them call on the elders, spiritual leaders of the church. Have those leaders come and pray and anoint with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The power is not in the elder. The power is not in the olive oil. The power is in the name that's above every name. It's the name of the Lord. It's the name that rescues. It's the name that heals. It's the name that saves. It's the name that redeems. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For there's no greater name in heaven and on earth and under the earth than the name of our Lord Jesus. James says, is there anybody who's sick? Have them call the elders of the church. Have them pray and anoint in the name of Jesus the Christ. Is there anybody in trouble? Anybody happy? Anybody sick? When you think about how James arranges this, this is the summation of the totality of life. All of your life can be summarized in one of those three categories. In trouble, happy, sick. And James arranges this in a specific way on purpose. Oh, he's not being pessimistic. He's just keeping it real because he knows that happiness, more times than not, is sandwiched between trouble and sickness. It's just the cycle of life. There's trouble, but trouble doesn't last forever. It gives way to happiness. Oh, but happiness can sometimes be fleeting, and it can give way to sickness. And on the backside of sickness, there can be some more trouble, but don't lose heart because through the trouble, there will be happiness on the horizon. And so the cycle continues to spin. This is a a description of the totality of life from womb to tomb. All of life summarized in trouble, happiness, and sickness. This is your life. This is my life. And James says that regardless of where you find yourself in that spinning cycle this morning, This is a good time and a good day for you to pray. 
Because whether you're in trouble, whether you're happy, whether you're sick, this is a good moment for you to pray because we are to pray continuously. Not only is this a summation of the totality of life, but this is a snapshot of the entire faith family. On any given day, every Sunday, anytime we get together, this is a snapshot of who we are. Because certainly there are some people in the house today and you're in trouble. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your children, once again, are in trouble. Your finances are upside down. You are in trouble. You've done something you ought not to have done. You are in trouble. Every time we meet, there are some people and they just feel like they're afflicted. They feel like they're suffering. They feel like they're in trouble. Oh, and every time we get together, there's a segment of the congregation that's just happy. Happy because God is so good. And so they sing and shout songs of praise. And then there are others that if I could ask for hands, you could say, yes, pastor, I'm sick. Just this past week, maybe you were diagnosed with cancer. Maybe just recently you've had to go through chemotherapy and radiation. Maybe you are waiting for a doctor's appointment or an upcoming surgery. And oh yes, you know the sickness that weighs so heavily upon your heart and your soul. And you could say this morning, yes, pastor, I know what it is to have to endure sickness. Oh, every time we meet, every time we get together, there's some are in trouble. Some who are happy, some who are sick. But regardless, brother or sister, where you find yourself today, today's a good day to pray. Because our prayer is to be continuous. We are to continuously pray unto the Lord in moments of trouble, in moments of happiness, in moments of sickness. Oh, but James continues. He says not only is our prayer to be continuous, but secondly, our prayer is to be faithful. Verse 15, the prayer offered in faith can make the sick person well. The Lord can raise him up. And if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. This is a powerful verse. James says that the prayer offered in faith that the prayer must be full of faith. The, the prayer must be dependent upon the Lord. The prayer must be full of belief, knowing that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask, think, or imagine. This is faithful prayer. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. That word well can also be translated healed. And in the Greek New Testament, the word for healed is synonymous with saved. And that makes some sense. Because it is the Lord who gives physical healing and it's the Lord who gives spiritual healing. And so he gives healing of the body and healing of the soul. He heals us and he saves us. It's the same Greek word for healing and saved. Do you recall, my friend, when the woman with the issue of blood for some 12 years risked it all, went out into public, went into that massive mob trying to get close to Jesus and all she could do was, by faith, touch the hem of his garment. And automatically, she felt power surging into her body. And she was completely healed. Knowing that somebody had touched him in faith, Jesus asked the question, who touched me? The disciples thought that was an audacious question. Because everybody was pressing up against Jesus. Jesus, why do you ask, who touched me? Somebody touched me in faith, he said. 
And realizing the woman had been found out, she came and knelt before Jesus. Do you recall what Jesus said to her? Daughter, your faith has healed you. He was speaking at two different levels. Not just her physical healing, but her spiritual healing. Her faith not only had healed her body of the issue of blood, but her faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that he could fix it. Oh, that faith was giving her salvation as well. The word that James uses for healed or made well is the same word for salvation. He goes on to say, the Lord will raise him up. Once again, this is a twofold meaning. Not only is James implying that Jesus can raise somebody physically off the deathbed, so that somebody who is prayed over and anointed with oil can then get up and be stronger afterwards than they ever were before. Oh, but James is also saying that the Lord will raise them up. There's an eschatological tone to the writing because James is saying that this one will be raised up on the last day, that Jesus has the power and the authority. He has the power not only to heal but the authority to forgive sins and so this one will be raised up sometimes physically in our sight other times on that last day Jesus uh, James goes on to say that not only will the prayer offered in faith make the sick person well and that the Lord will raise him up but if he has sinned he will be forgiven once again, James knows his big brother Jesus, that Jesus is the sole savior of the universe. He has at his disposal not just power, but also authority. He has the power to heal, but ultimately, he has the authority to forgive sins. You remember the story of the paralytic, that paralyzed man who had at least four friends. And the four friends took him, cut a hole in the man's roof, plopped him down at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, man, get up, take up your mat and walk. When everybody began to marvel at that, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. On that day, Jesus dealt not only with the physical infirmity, but also the spiritual sickness of his very soul. Because Jesus has the power and the authority, the power to heal, the authority to forgive sins. If you pray in faith, the sick person will be made well. He will be raised up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Before I leave verse 15, there are a couple of what I think significant questions that must be asked. As I think about this verse, I ask myself the question, is there a correlation between sin and sickness? I mean, earlier James wrote that desire that entices you when it's full grown it gives birth to sin and when sin is full grown it gives birth to death so all of us I think would say that there is some sort of a connection because disease and death are results of the fall of man well let me be more poignant really the question I'm asking is is there a correlation between my sin and my sickness? Is there a correlation and connection between your sin and your sickness? Now, automatically, some of you are thinking in your minds, no, there's no correlation. I, I don't get cancer just because I lied. 
There's no direct correlation between that sin and that sickness. Oh, but some of you are thinking, but wait a minute. There may be a correlation because, because of the sin of gluttony. Then I was diagnosed with heart disease. Yes, there is a correlation between my sin and my sickness. So friend, is there a connectivity between personal sin and personal sickness? Think about it biblically. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians that you have taken the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And because, he writes, of your disobedience, that's why some of you are weak and sick and have fallen asleep. Falling asleep is a fancy way of saying died. So Paul seems to make a connection and a correlation that their sin in taking the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner was leading to their weakness and their sickness and their death. Oh, but Jesus seems to debunk this whole correlation between personal sin and personal sickness in John chapter 9. When Jesus encounters a man born blind, the disciples ask him, Teacher, which one sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this man was born blind to demonstrate the work and the glory of God in his life. It would seem that Jesus kind of debunks the notion that personal sin correlates to personal sickness. But we've got two different examples, so how do we process this? I would suggest to you this morning that not all sin leads to sickness. And not all sickness can be traced back to a particular sin in your life. But before getting you off the hook, let me also add that it is possible that some sin in your personal life can lead to some sickness in your personal life. I think there's a deeper lesson in verse 15. And the deeper lesson is this, that your selfish sinfulness doesn't just affect you. And my sinful selfishness does not just affect me. We do not sin alone. We do not sin in silos because my sin affects you and your sin affects me. That my sin affects the church. Your sin affects the church. We are interconnected one with the other. Not only bound by Christ but bound one to the other in this faith family. So when you sin, it affects all of us. When I sin, it affects all of us. And I think that James is teaching us a deeper lesson that our sin affects each other. I think there's an even greater lesson from verse 15. And the lesson is this, that, that when that man came to his senses, realizing his own sinfulness, calling on the elders of the church to come and to pray, there's healing in that. That when you acknowledge your sin before a holy God, when you beseech friends in the faith to come and to pray with, there is healing in that. 
There's something powerful when we get honest before the Lord. Something powerful we get honest before each other. There is something powerful and redemptive when we are honest before God. And God is able to heal us, to raise us. And where there is sin, he's able to forgive us. I think there's another significant question from verse 15. And the question is, what about those times when there is no healing? Like you, uh, there have been times in my life when I have been called upon to go and to pray over someone who's sick. To bring olive oil. To anoint them. To pray in faith that the sick person will be made well. The first time I was asked to do this in ministry took place the week before Molly Grace was born. A sweet lady named Joyce called and asked for me to come and pray for her husband, George. She specifically asked me to execute James 5.15. Bring olive oil, anoint him with that oil, and pray for my husband's healing. Now keep in mind, this is the first time I'd ever done this. I thought to myself, it sounds really biblical. I have no problem doing it. In fact, I can find it here in James chapter 5. So I went and I got olive oil. I went to the hospital and I prayed in faith. I prayed believing that George was going to get up out of the hospital bed. I anointed him with oil. I probably anointed a little bit too much oil because that oil ran down into his eyes, into his mouth. I, I, I said, oh, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry about that. But I didn't know what I was doing. I just kind of doused him the whole thing. I left the hospital in full confidence that George was going to get up from his sickness. Just a couple of days before Molly Grace was born, George died. As a young minister, I had to process this. And, and I asked myself these honest questions. I'm just being transparent with you this morning. I asked myself the questions, uh, did I not pray right? Did I not pray in faith? Did I not use the right olive oil? Did I use too much olive oil? Was I distracted with first-time parenthood? Because that's kind of a big deal. And for Jane Ellen and me, this was a big deal that Molly Grace was about to be born. And so uh, my mind was always drifting to that. So I wondered, maybe I was just distracted in all of this. And friend, I learned a valuable lesson very early in ministry when it comes to James chapter 5. That James chapter 5 verse 15 does not promise that every person who's prayed over and anointed with oil will be physically healed. Doesn't promise that. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has sinned, God will forgive him. And friend, all of that happened for George Stack. All of that took place because God decided to heal him ultimately through death. 
To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I stand here nearly 18 years later and I am convinced from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet that God raised George from that bed. He just didn't allow me to see it. It wasn't a physical healing. It was a spiritual healing. Now, I'm just not trying to skirt the issue. I'm not just trying to get around it. But what I'm trying to tell you is this, that God is in charge of all of this. God is the one who calls the shots. We come to him in faith. We come to him believing and knowing he has the power and the prerogative to do it. But ultimately, it's his decision. And any time and every time a miracle takes place and a dead person gets up or a sick person gets up off of the deathbed, that is a miracle of God. But equally so, whenever Lord Jesus comes and escorts a beloved child of God into eternity, guides him or her into glory, that too is equally miraculous so on that day I learned a valuable lesson that God is in charge and God does heal sometimes it's physical and we're able to see it we call that a miracle somebody who's on the deathbed should die but by the power of God they're raised up and now they're stronger than they ever have been before we call that a miracle. In the same way, it is equally miraculous when God takes one of his children home to heaven. Every time either of those things happen, it just reminds us that we live in a world of some more, but we're going to the place of no more. We live with some more pain. We're going to the place of no more pain. We live with some more death. Going to the place of no more death. We live with some more heartache. Going to the place of no more heartache. We live with some more sorrow. Going to the place of no more sorrow. This just reminds us that we are not home yet. We're simply on a journey. We're passing through. We're sojourners. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven. And one day, Lord Jesus will come and escort us into eternity. So James tells the church, confess your sins to each other. That when you pray faithfully, that will lead you to confess sins to each other. When you pray faithfully, you will pray for one another. When it comes to the idea of confession, you've heard it said, confession is good for the soul. I'll tell you, confession is also good for the church. There is something powerful. There is something transparent when God's people begin to confess their sins one to the other. Oh, most of the time we're too embarrassed, we're too shy, we're too ashamed to even think about the prospect of confessing our sins to each other. Can I put some guardrails around this whole idea of confession though? Guardrails that I think would be helpful. That in the process of confession, you don't have to tell all the graphic, gory details to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't necessarily have to tell all the details of what you did and where you did and how you did and how many times you did and with whom you did. Right? I mean, you don't have to tell all the details so that a person, when they see you, that's all they visualize in the mental screen of their mind. Be graphic with God. God knows all the details of what you did. Be graphic with God. 
But you don't necessarily have to relive, retell all the gory details to brothers and sisters in the Lord. It is powerful to confess sin. I think confession is like Drano. It kind of just unstops the pipes. You know, Drano, if it does its work, it, it, it enables the water to flow. And so when we confess our sins to each other, there's something liberating about that. There's something that allows the grace of God to flow in our lives, the forgiveness to flow in us and through us. There's something powerful. Confessions like Drano. But let me also add that when you confess, you need to confess your sins to those you've harmed. So you need to confess your sin to God because you harmed him. And you need to confess your sin to the one that you have offended. A damaged relationship needs confession in order for there to be a reconciled relationship. And where there's private sin, there needs to be private confession. And where there's public sin, there needs to be public confession. I think these are healthy, good guide rails and, and guardrails, guidelines for us to have in this whole concept of confession. We need to confess one to the other. We uh, don't err on the side mostly of telling too much. We err on the side of telling too little. We act as if we got it all together. We give off the impression far too many times that we're perfect. We're not. It's helpful. It's healthy to confess sins one to the other. When we confess that sin, it unstops us, it unclogs us, so that then James could write the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. When did they become powerful and effective? Once the confession happened. If you don't have confession in your life, then you don't have prayers that are powerful and effective. That once the confession took place, then there was powerful, effective prayers of righteous men and women before God. Oh, James gives us the example of Elijah. Elijah we think of as a powerful Old Testament prophet, and certainly he was. But how does James describe him? A man just like us. Listen, he put his toga on one arm sleeve at a time, just like you. He put his sandals on one foot at a time, just like you. He was a man just like us. Yet he prayed. Boy, did he pray. He prayed for more than one minute a day, I'll tell you that much. He prayed again and again. He prayed over and over. He prayed as he gained an audience with King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, who had led the children of Israel into Baal idolatry. And it's Elijah who stood before that wicked king Ahab and said, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except in my word. For three and a half years, there was a drought. Baal was believed to be the God who controlled the weather forecast. He's always portrayed as having a lightning bolt in his hand and standing on a cloud. What Elijah is saying is that Baal is no God at all. He cannot control the weather forecast. He can't cause one drop of rain to fall from the sky. But Yahweh is the one true God. He's the one who opens up the heavens and shuts up the skies. For three and a half years, there was a drought. Eventually, Elijah said, oh, let's have a showdown on Mount Carmel. Let's decide who is the one true God. Stop this wavering back and forth between two opinions. If Baal is God, let's serve him. If Yahweh is God, let's serve him. So Elijah stood up as the one lone prophet of God. He went up against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. They were there on Mount Carmel. 
And Elijah, who's a perfectly good gentleman, said, y'all go first. So they constructed the altar. They prepared the sacrifice. They called to Baal morning, noon, and night. There was nothing. Not one drop from the sky. Not one spark from heaven. There was nothing that happened. Eventually, Elijah began to taunt them, kind of talk smack to them. Oh, maybe uh, God can't hear you. Uh, Maybe Baal is asleep and needs to be awakened. Maybe Baal is in deep thought, which is a phrase that means maybe he's using the bathroom. Maybe he has gone fishing. Maybe he is, you know, has a stomach ache. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he just can't understand. Why don't you cut yourself? And maybe the blood will attract the attention of your false god, Baal. So they began to slash themselves, hoping that they would capture the attention of Baal. But nothing happened. It came time for the evening sacrifice. And Elijah built a 12-stone altar, 12 stones, 12 tribes of Israel. He cut and prepared the sacrifice, placed it on the altar. He said to his servants, go and get me four jars of water. He ordered this not once, twice, but three times. So there are 12 jars of water on the 12 stones. Keep in mind, it's in the middle of a drought. And he tells them to go and get water. They douse the sacrifice and all the stones. In fact, he had built a trench around the altar and and the water filled up the trench. And Elijah just stood up and he prayed, God, show up. God, show yourself strong and mighty. No sooner had he prayed that fire fell from heaven. This is not a one-minute prayer. This is not just a person who has one-minute prayers a day. This is a person who prayed over and over and over. He was faithful in his prayers. God heard the faithfulness of the prayers of his servant. And God allowed fire to fall from heaven. It destroyed the sacrifice and the altar and all the stones. It licked up the water in the trough. And everybody began to declare, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Elijah gave the order to capture and slaughter all the false gods of Baal and Asherah. And then we're told that Elijah went back up Mount Carmel and he sat down in a prayer posture and he began to pray, Lord, send rain. He called for a servant, go see if you can find a rain cloud. Servant went, saw nothing, came back, there's not a cloud in the sky. This went on for seven times. Eventually, after the seventh prayer, after the seventh time when the servant is sent, he comes back and he says, there's a small cloud. It's the size of a man's fist. It is so small, so insignificant. It is so far away. Elijah said, hike your skirt. We got to run down this mountain. Because if we don't start running now, that storm that's coming is going to overwhelm us. And sure enough, God answered the prayer and he gave rain. James just simply says that Elijah prayed And he prayed again, and he prayed again, and he prayed again. You know what that is? That's faithful prayers. Friend, there's somebody listening to my voice, and you are one prayer away from a breakthrough. Don't stop praying for your marriage. You're one prayer away from a breakthrough. 
Don't stop praying for your children. Don't stop praying for your prodigal grandchildren. You are one prayer away from a breakthrough. Don't stop praying for employment. You're one prayer away from a breakthrough. Don't stop praying for God to show up and to show off. You keep praying and God will keep honoring the prayers of the faithful servants of God. You keep praying. Some of you are one prayer away from a breakthrough. Elijah kept praying and praying. He was faithful. I gotta quickly tell you the third point. I'm only gonna spend a couple of minutes on it. If you're not listening, you're gonna, it's gonna pass by you without you even noticing. Not only does James tell the church to pray continuously, but secondly, he says pray faithfully. Third and finally, pray expectantly. It's verses 19 and 20. Remember, if, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone rescues you remember this that there is great blessing to the one who is turned from sin for he will be saved and spared from death and his sins will be covered friend James is finishing the letter urging the church to pray expectantly that when you pray, you need to expect for God to do something. For God to do something glorious. Can you think of anything more glorious than one who had wandered from the truth to be turned back to the truth? Interestingly enough, the word wandered is, is a slow fade. It's a, it's a gradual surrender into disobedience. I think that's how the devil gets most of us. I think the devil gets most of us with a gradual fade. It's nothing that's so stark and nothing that's so blatant, but it's just kind of a, a gradual thing. We just kind of drift away from the Lord. The bent of your selfish soul is away from the truth of God. The bent of your soul is to, is to travel and wander away from God. James says, the one who wanders from the truth. Where is the truth? The truth is the word of God. He said in chapter 1 to be doers of the word. The reality is many times we're doers of sin. Instead of being doers of the word, we are doers of sin. So here he says, if, if, if there is one who is retrieved, if there is one who is rescued, if there is one who comes back, if there is one who is turned back to the truth, that person averts death and there's a multitude of sins that are covered over. Now regardless of whether that person is lost and then is found or is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ but somehow, someway has been kind of uh, backsliding away from the Lord and is wandering from him. In the words of Oswald Chambers that our conversion is a continuous conversion. It's not that we are saved every day. It's not that one day we have salvation and one day we lose salvation. But Oswald Chambers is saying that every day you wake up and you say, today, I'm going to live for you. Today, I'm going to be close to your truth. Today, I'm going to follow hard after God. There's a sense that, that we expect God to keep us and to hold us, and we expect God to use us to help somebody else. Is there anything more glorious than God using you to help bring somebody to faith in Christ? Is there anything more glorious? The answer is no. There is nothing greater and so when you pray, you need to pray expectingly, expectantly that God is going to use you this day, this week, this hour, this evening. He's going to use you to help somebody along the path. Maybe that person is a spouse or a child 
Maybe that person's a neighbor or a coworker. Maybe that person's a classmate or a teammate. Maybe that person's another church member. Maybe that person's on staff. Maybe that person is, is somebody that you're just going to find at the restaurant today. Regardless, you pray expecting for God to use you to minister to somebody. I promise you that if you pray expecting to find an opportunity for ministry, God will give you more opportunities than you can ever imagine. The problem is that most of the time we go through life with spiritual eyes shut. We don't see people for who they are. But if we pray expectantly saying, God, I want you to use me to help rescue somebody who's wandering from the truth. I promise you, he is going to put numerous individuals in your path. So friend, today, I'm going to urge you to do what James urged his congregation to do. Pray. I want you to pray. I want you to pray continuously. Is there anybody in trouble? Is there anybody happy? Is there anybody sick? Come to the altar and pray. I want you to pray not just continuously but faithfully because some of you are one prayer away from a breakthrough. And I want you to pray expectantly that God is going to use you to help turn somebody who's wandered from the truth back to God, that God's going to use you. I want you to pray fervent, believing prayer, for it lies at the root of all personal godliness. Church, I want you to pray. I want you to pray. I want you to pray. I want you to pray continuously. I want you to pray faithfully. I want you to pray expectantly. In this moment, in this very hour, I call you to pray. Come here and kneel at the altar of God and say, God, I come to you in prayer. Because fervent believing prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray that you will hear the prayers of your people. We pray that you will draw us unto yourself. Lord Jesus, minister to us as we call out to you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.